0: And we're continuing our study this morning in this fifth chapter of Matthew's Gospel. You should be very well aware now that this is the beginning of the greatest sermon that was ever preached, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And this is when Jesus gathered that great crowd on the hillside in Galilee, and he began to teach them about life in his kingdom. I suppose that you've heard it said that the Bible is an antiquated book an old book. It was finished some 2,000 years ago, and so it can't possibly have any relevance to my life here today in this 21st century. But as we look into the Word of God today, I I don't think that there's any passage that we could look at that would dispel that notion any more quickly than what we're reading right here. Uh, What I have to say uh, today to you is in some ways uncomfortable. There are some things that I just ...really don't like to talk about very much, and I handle these kind of subjects very gingerly. Uh, There's some things that I don't like to discuss openly in public, and when it comes to things like sex, that's something that I tread on very lightly. And when you talk about sex, there are usually two extremes that happen. You have some people that just sit up on the edge of the chair, their eyes pop wide open because you've just hit on their favorite subject... This is what they want to hear about. And then there are others that what they do is they squinch down in the chair and uh, they would like to get out the door as quickly as possible because they don't want to hear too much. So there's no way that we can say that what the teaching of the Word of God has on this subject today is not relevant because what we're talking about here is something that's very human. It affects everyone in the room today. It's very practical teaching. So we're going to explore what the Bible has to say about a very relevant, hot topic. So stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. We're looking in Matthew chapter 5, and our text verses today are verses 27 and 28. Matthew 5, verses 27 and 28. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again one more time for being able to be in your house today. And Lord, as we consider this text today, I just pray that you would open up our hearts to the truth of your word and may we consider very carefully what Jesus has to teach about this Thing of adultery and lust in our hearts, and we give you the praise for what we learned today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Jesus said, you have heard that it hath been said by them of old time. Now I want to re- remind you that the purpose of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount was to show the people that God had a standard that far exceeded the standard they were living by. In verse number 20, which is really a key verse to this next section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, "...for I say unto you that unless your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven." And when Jesus said that, that was a real problem for the people because they looked at the lives of their religious leaders and they saw what they did and all the laws and the commands that they had put into place and they thought that there is absolutely no way that we could ever live to the standard of those people. But what they were actually looking at was what the Pharisees were teaching in their own minds, what they had added to the law, their own interpretations, and they really didn't understand what the Scriptures actually said. What the scribes and Pharisees were doing is that they were uh, clinging to an external righteousness. A righteousness that was invented by them, it was maintained by them, and it simply became too much for the people to bear. There was always a new rule that was given, there was a new interpretation. And so how to be right with God to these people became as elusive as trying to chase a cloud of steam. But Jesus came along, and he teaches something different. And in his teachings, he claimed that he had not come to change what Moses and the prophets said. He didn't come to ask more than what they said. He did not come to ask less than what they said. But what Jesus was doing was bringing them back to the true interpretation, the real intent of God's law. Now, the gist of his teachings is that righteousness is not external. Righteousness is a matter of the heart. It's internal. And that ought to show us that there is nothing that we can do to produce righteousness. Man is incapable of producing his own righteousness. So the righteousness that he must have must come from God. It has to be a righteousness given by God as God begins to work in us and to change this inherent sinful nature. Now, the principle that Jesus is demonstrating in these scriptures is that this righteousness, again, is internal. And so he uses six six different examples of showing the futility of trying to affect an inward change by things that are done outwardly. Now, he spoke first about murder. That was our subject last week. That was in verses 21 and 22. And he showed them that murder was not just the taking of another person's life. He taught that murder is an attitude of the heart. And so he said, if you've been angry, if you have hatred in your heart towards any person, then you have already violated the spirit of God's law. Now, anger and hatred are common, ordinary, everyday sins. And we certainly would not call them abnormal, the way that most people act. It's not confined to just a few people who would end up in prison for committing some heinous crime, like uh, actually killing a person. Jesus said, though, that all of you are guilty of murder. All of you have showed anger and malice towards others, and so you're guilty of it. Now, that is an impossible standard. It's much higher than the scribes and the Pharisees. It exceeded the external righteousness that they had, because anger is a sin of the heart, and they simply could not control the evil that was in their heart. Now, Jesus then comes along with another demonstration, and this is the sin of adultery. And likewise, this teaching is not confined to the outward act. This is something that proceeds from the heart, and so that was very relevant to the crowd he was preaching to in Galilee, and friends, it is very relevant to what this crowd is doing here today. He said, "'Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time.'" In other words, this is what you have been so long taught. This is what the scribes and the Pharisees said. But what Jesus is about to say is what Moses and the prophets actually taught. Now, let's begin today by discussing the effects of adultery. What does the Bible really say about adultery? Well, I think what we would have to do, first of all, is to define the term. What is the definition of adultery? Now, our common definition is that adultery is when a person has sexual relations with someone who is other than their husband, lawful husband or wife. If you're married to someone and you enter into a sexual relationship with someone other than the person that you are married to, then that constitutes adultery. And adultery is taught that way or shown that way in many different places in Scripture, When Jesus used the term adultery, he was going back to the Old Testament commandments, uh, the Ten Commandments, and this is the Seventh Commandment. The Word of God said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But most Bible expositors agree that the Seventh Commandment intends more than just sex that's related to marriage. In fact, it refers to any type of a sexual sin, any type that's outside the biblical relationship of marriage. Now, if you're taking notes today, you might want to write this down, that the Seventh Commandment actually addresses all sexual sins. So adultery, in the, in the Ten Commandment respect, can mean premarital sex. It refers to homosexuality. It refers to the common definition that I've just given you concerning marriage. And really, it just refers to any immoral activity, sexual activity. Now, the Bible calls that sin... It is a sin. It's an act of sin. It's against God, and God has included that in His Ten Commandments. Now next, the effect of adultery, one of the effects is the dishonesty of it. It's a very dishonest act. Now adultery, when we're, especially when we're talking about marriage, is dishonest. And You don't really have to go to the Scriptures to discover that because whenever we talk about someone who's committed this sin, what do we say? That person has been unfaithful. The one who commits adultery has been unfaithful. They've broken a promise. It's a promise that's in the marriage vows. And whether those vows were spoken or unspoken, it always carries with it. The marriage vows always carry with them a promise to be faithful. A promise that you will stand by your husband or your wife and you will remain in monogamous relationship. Now, when a person is unfaithful to that vow, the person is dishonest. And so that means that is a person that can't be trusted. An immoral person cannot be trusted. That's blight on his personal integrity. Now, it's so amazing that people will so easily cheat on a spouse. And the one who cheats with them will usually look at that person and they'll say, Wow, what a guy he is. And they have starry eyes and they talk about how much they love that person and how whenever they see them that their their toes tingle. He's the greatest. He's my dream. When reality, in reality, he is nothing but a liar. He's dishonest and he is a cheat. Now the effect of adultery is that people who commit it are dishonest. They have no integrity. He or she has no integrity. Now, we're not talking here about white lies. We're talking about the most sacred of all of our vows. That's why we call it holy matrimony. Marriage was given by God. It was sanctioned by God. And any person who breaks a marriage vow is a dishonest person, and they are to be dishonored. Kind of strong, isn't it? But that's what the Bible teaches. Then there's another effect of adultery, and that's the devastation of adultery. Adultery destroys families. Now, you know this. Many people, many times there are are children that are involved, and adultery can destroy the lives of children. It destroys the security of children. Adultery is a supremely selfish act because what it does, it only considers the gratification of the person who commits it. It puts their feelings above The needs of a child or of the spouse. Adultery can be devastating to a family because it can bring debt. I mean, how many times have you read in your papers or heard about people that are going through a divorce? And, of course, that's another effect of adultery. But you find, uh, you hear about this where husbands and wives are fighting over property, over bank accounts, over retirement accounts. And in the end, people become paupers and everybody suffers because of the sin. Then you have the allocating that goes on in adultery, what I call it, and that can bring disease. People switch partners and they perpetuate disease and they bring that into families. Now, if we're talking about the seventh commandment definition of adultery, then, of course, you have to consider homosexuality here. What has been responsible for this AIDS epidemic? You know, I know it's not politically correct for me to say that and and, uh, people will put you down if you ever tried to associate what homosexuals do with the sin of AIDS, the disease of AIDS. It's not fair to pin it upon them because even heterosexual people get AIDS. But let me ask you, where is the sin pervasive? Where is the disease most pervasive? Where did you hear about this before homosexuality started coming to light and became more acceptable in our society? And so... They've helped to spread that contamination, to uh, sometimes innocently, to other people. So the disease is perpetuated by immorality, and it's the breaking of God's commandments. Now, don't think that God doesn't know what he's talking about. When you break God's commandments, there is a price that must be paid, and that price can be exacted from you in every area of life. It can be your physical well-being, it can be your financial well-being, your mental well-being, no good ever Comes from this. Now, if you want to look at biblical examples, we could go to the Word of God and we could look at David. We're all aware of how David committed adultery and then he followed that up with murder. And the end result of David's wickedness was that he lost his child. His child died. We could look at Shechem in the Old Testament. Now, there was a man who forced Dinah, who was the daughter of Jacob, and in the end, Every male in his city was slaughtered. The wives and the children were taken as captive, and all of their wealth was taken away from them. You could look at the life of Absalom, and you could see what he did. And in the end, his heart was struck through with an arrow. So we're talking about a devastating sin. And really, it's the the action or the sin of a fool. And then there's another effect that you need to think about very clearly and very seriously, and that is the damnation of adultery. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now do you see the company that an adulterer keeps? Thieves, drunkards extortioners. Adultery is a damnable sin. Hebrews says, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Now do you see where this is going? Jesus brings up the sin of adultery and he says that judgment is going to follow. Damnation of God will follow. So Jesus does not slight the consequences of the physical act at all. There's dishonesty in it, there's devastation, there's damnation. All of that follows. And Jesus is not going to minimize the effect of the deed. Now let's speak again, secondly, or following here, the evil of adultery. And maybe you think, well, that's what we've been doing all along here. We're talking about the evil of adultery, and you figured this out already. If it's against God's commandments, if there's dishonesty and devastation and damnation that comes by it, then surely it is a great evil. Well, let's look at it a little bit different way. What is adultery? Well, it is the perversion of sex. It's not what God intended. It's taking sex out of the place that God intended, which is only in a healthy marriage relationship. Now, there are some who would argue, and really this is an argument that goes back a long, long way, thousands of years. There are people that argue that sex is merely a biological function. Birds do it, bees do it, educated fleas do it, which, you know, in Cole Porter's terminology, he was talking about falling in love, not about having sex. But you hear that all the time. Birds do it, bees do it, so it's just a natural thing. It's biology, man. You've got to have it. You've got to have sex, just like you have to have food. It's just like you have to have sleep, just like you have to eat and drink. It's nothing but a biological function. And that was the philosophy of the Greeks and the Romans in Paul's day. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And you know what that included? It included gluttony, drunkenness, debauchery, and also, friends, unbridled sex. So Paul confronted that biology argument thousands of years ago. And here's what he wrote in 1 Corinthians. Meats for the belly and the belly for meats. That's what people were saying. I mean, it's all a biological thing. Hugh Hefner said the same thing. It's natural. It's as easy as falling off a log. It's just like gravity. You have to have it. But the problem is, what we've done with it is a perversion. It's all skewed, it's all messed up. James Montgomery Boyce addresses this, and he relates in his commentary, when he's talking about this passage, something written by C.S. Lewis. Now, I want you to listen to this, because this is a fascinating comparison. And he begins with his own comment. He starts out, The appetite for sex, stimulated by our culture, is enormously out of proportion to its function. C.S. Lewis, who makes this point far better than anyone else I know, says wisely, The biological purpose of sex is children, just as the biological purpose of eating is to repair the body. Now, if we eat whenever we feel inclined and just as much as we want, it's quite true that most of us will eat too much, but not terrifically too much. One man may eat enough for two, but he does not eat enough for ten. The appetite goes a little beyond its biological purpose, but not enormously. But if a healthy young man indulged his sexual appetite whenever he felt inclined, and if each act produced a baby then in ten years he might easily populate a small village. This appetite is in ludicrous and preposterous excess of its function. Now listen to me. Or take it another way, he says. You can get a large audience together for a tease act, that is to watch a girl undress on stage. Now suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see, just before the lights went out, that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? And would not anyone who had grown up in a different world think there's something equally queer about the state of sex, the sex instinct among us? I'm sure you get the point of that, don't you? Our attitudes about sex are all messed up. They are perverted. They've gone far into excess and beyond God's intent. And then to show you how much things are skewed, all you have to do is go to church. I mean, church is a place that ought to be a respite from what you see out there in the world. But we've reached the dreaded summer months. We're right into the middle of it, and you find many times that sex is pulled right along into the church. There's exposure of way too much skin. There is tight, form-fitting clothing, low-top dresses, short-cut dresses, and a lot of times nothing or much in between. It's exposure, exposure of the body. It's the society that is actually selling sex. And friends, it's brought right into the house of God. Now, what's going on? Well, the evil is the pandering to sex, almost Every advertisement that you see on billboards, that you hear on TV or on the radio has some kind of sexual overtone. Your toothpaste says, give your mouth sex appeal. Your shaving lotion, shaving cream says, take it off, take it off, take it all off. Your blue jeans, want to know what comes between me and my Calvin Klein's? Nothing. An iPod ad with a silhouette of a naked girl Victoria's Secret ads, lingerie ads, underwear ads. You see all of that on your television. You can see it in your daily newspaper. Our society is saturated with this. So much even that churches have even got in on the act. And they've taken sex education beyond the home, taken it beyond the schools, which in fact we are also against. And they've taken it right into the church. And they have classes on this in church buildings. There's one mainstream denomination that had what they called a sexual activity class and the people came into the church and they went into their classroom, they took all their clothes off, they got into bed and they received instructions from their teachers. Bishop James Pike taught that the highest Christian virtue is love, that's what he called love, and he said anything goes as long as it doesn't hurt the other person. So if you commit adultery, that's okay. As long as you have the other person's best interest at heart, that's all right. And you know what they called that? You know the term. They called it the new morality. It has no preconceived norm, not even a biblical one. And so what you do, right or wrong, is only determined by the circumstance that you're in or the context in which it's done. Now therein is the problem. He said that you have to have the other person's best interest at heart. And isn't this the real problem that we're talking about here? Righteousness is what? It's a matter of the heart. And friends, there's a problem with your heart. And so you can't tell what's right or wrong or or best for the other person because you have evil in your heart. You're messed up too. And so we have this overwhelming, unnatural, should be irrational pull that sex has on people. Now, let's bring that back to the biblical context. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, That whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. So, thirdly, we see the enactment of adultery. What does it mean to actually commit adultery? Are we supposed to. Stick with these strict definitions that the act or physically entering into the act, that's all that the Bible means by adultery. That's what the scribes and Pharisees did. So they were keeping with a standard. It was a lowered standard. It was not the standard of God's law. And so they took the law of God and they applied it to the strict interpretation of the deed. And they said, as long as I can refrain from this act, then I'm okay. So let's talk about that act for just a minute. What about the deed of adultery? Well, we can't fault the Pharisees for teaching about the deed. The deed is the expression, and and perhaps we've never even known that we needed to teach against this if the sin didn't work itself out in the actual deed. Now, the effects of the deed we've discussed, they're devastating. It destroys families. A wife or a husband that goes into this hurts children that are involved, and there are innocent victims of this whole thing. It was a very serious matter. And the Pharisees were very well aware of the facts. They could read all the Bible stories. They'd read what I just told you about David. They knew the stories about Absalom. They heard about Shechem. They were very much aware of of the problem of adultery and what it causes. And so they were very quick to enforce the penalty. And so they said, the law of Moses said, if you catch somebody doing this, you should stone them. And the reason they said that was because that was good for society. It restrains immorality and indecency. In John chapter 8, we know there's a story there of the woman that was taken in adultery. She was caught in the very act. And in the story, we see her there surrounded by a group of men and each one of them was ready to pick up and to throw a stone at her. Why did they do that? Because they understood the act. They understood how awful the act was. They knew what the law of God said. Moses said, if you're caught in the act, this is what you should do. Now, when Jesus stepped into that and he stopped them from stoning her, he wasn't going against what Moses said, but rather Jesus had the power to forgive her. And that's the only reason that he stopped it. He wasn't going against the law of Moses. What he was doing was washing her sins away. And only God himself, the Son of God, has the power to forgive sins. So make no mistake about this. The deed is serious. You're not going to get off the consequences of adultery just because they don't take you out and stone you. Now, if we stoned people for the sin of adultery today, you know what we'd have to do? We'd have to have a rock quarry in every town. And if we took Jesus' definition of adultery, not only would it need it in every town, we would need it in every person's backyard. And that's because Jesus also teaches about the desire for adultery. And he teaches that the desire is tantamount. To the deed. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Where does adultery come from? Where does lying come from? Where does stealing come from? Where does murder come from? Where does covetousness come from? It all comes from the desire. The desire that's very deep down in the heart. And so Jesus says then, if you look at a woman to lust after her... And that means women, too. Women, if you look at a man, to lust after him, you've already committed adultery in your heart. You see, when you look at that, and when you fantasize about sex, and you attach that person to your fantasies, you've lusted. And the Bible says that lust is as evil as committing the physical deed. Now, before a person goes into the physical act, the desire is there. But what if you stopped from the physical act? Well, it's just like murder. We talked about it last week. What if you have the motive, but you don't have the opportunity? Does that mean that you're no longer guilty? Of course not. The lust is still there. If you refrain from the physical act because something has kept you from it, you're still guilty. And so there are men who will say, well, I would never cheat on my wife. I'll never cheat on her. And they wouldn't, not physically, but they're always looking. They're always trolling always getting their eyes on something that they shouldn't have. And why is it? Because the lust is there. So Jesus says you're guilty as surely as if you have entered into the act. Now, I want to add this as well, that a person who incites lust in another person by provocative clothing or by their mannerisms is also guilty. Now, girls, you don't dress that way unless there's lust in your heart too. And parents, you don't let your children dress that way unless you're afraid that they're not going to have the sex appeal that all the other kids have. You know, I don't know how many times I've heard parents say, well, we can't find dresses to fit our little girls. We can't find clothing for our teenagers because all they're doing is selling sex. Well, how many parents have never even made the attempt? How many people in churches have never even made that attempt because modesty and chastity are not on their minds? I mean, they've adopted the sex culture too. And the bottom line of it all is there's lust, there's craving in the human heart. And so thus you have the problem with the Pharisees. They're looking and they're lusting. They would never go through with a physical act. And so therefore they thought we have kept the law and we are righteous in the eyes of God. Now Jesus would not accept that. And he wouldn't accept it because that was the lowering of God's standard. God looks at the heart. God looks at the desire and not just the deed. And so you can't escape because you haven't done the deed. Now, where does that leave all of us? I mean, here we are in this sexually pervasive society. It's everywhere we look. It's all around us. All of you here, you know how easy it is to look at those things and have lust in your heart over those things. Where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us exactly with the point that Jesus is trying to make. Righteousness is internal. The heart has to be changed. You can't be righteous by what you do, and you can't be righteous by what you don't do. The only way that you can be righteous is if God changes your heart. Now, the Pharisees, they were powerless to do anything about the heart. And friends, we are in the same situation. We're powerless to do anything about our our hearts. Now, on one hand, you have those people that we talked about a moment ago that they indulge in the sex. I mean, they fully go after this. They they have the attitude that the whole thing is biological. There's nothing wrong with it. And what is the argument that you always hear from people? Well, it's my body. I can do what I want with my body. It's my body. And so if it doesn't hurt anybody else, then what's the problem here? Well, a moment ago, I didn't finish Paul's argument or his statement when he talked about how that is a biological thing. Here's the end of the statement. Meats for the belly and the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Now you see that? The body is not for you. The body is for God. All of us were created in the image of God. We're made for him. We're made for God's honor and his glory. And so sexual sins of any kind, they dishonor God. Now on the other hand, you have those other people, and they are the ones that are straight up and they're buttoned down. And they're the ones who are hiding behind a facade that says there is nothing wrong. They would never commit the act. They would never go into the act. But the lust is burning a hole in them. And Jesus says you stand guilty before God. Both sides, both people need something to happen to the heart. Now you see in the pharisaical system they were not equipped to deal with heart issues. They ignored the heart because if they considered all of that, if they saw that the problem was so deep down inside of them, when they saw that it was really like God's law said that it was, they would have to come to the conclusion of the utter futility of doing righteous works to become righteous before God. Keeping commandments would never help them. And that is Jesus' point, friends. You can't do it by yourself. You have to have him. And so I would tell you today, if you're not saved, you need him. The Bible says that you will suffer damnation for your sins. And so there may be someone sitting here today, and you think, oh, I would never commit the act of adultery, I'd never go into that. But you have that lust in your heart. You have it before your eyes, you've entered into the temptation, maybe you didn't do the act, but you've had it there before you all the time, well, the Bible says you cannot escape God's law. This is God's law. God's law will always be honored. And then on the other hand, some of you are here today and you're a saved person. And I would say to you, you still need him. You still need him because that lust will be there. You may be a Christian today, and you're struggling with these very issues, all this lust that's in your heart, and you're wondering, how can I overcome this lust? Well, Jesus is the resource. You're not fighting a losing battle. This is not something that can't be overcome, because with the power of God, when your heart is fully stayed upon Jesus Christ, you can overcome these sins. God gives us the ability to do that. Now, the question for every person here today, has Jesus change your heart. Something happened to your heart because if it hasn't, you'll never escape the damnation of God. Now, we've only gone through two of these examples. We've gone through murder. And what did we see? Anger, malice against another person. Whenever you have hatred in your heart, Jesus says that's sin and you're going to be judged for that sin. Now we see the sin of adultery and it's not just a matter of physically entering into the act. It's also the lust that's down in your heart. So what are you going to do about that? There's nothing you can do except turn to Jesus Christ who washes away all of our sins. We must have the righteousness that exceeds. And that righteousness is Jesus' own righteousness given to us by faith in His blood. Do you know Him? Your heart needs to be changed. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word, how convicting it is, how it strikes at who we are and how it affects us in such a way that there's no way that we can escape the condemnation of the law. There's no way we can keep the law. It had to be done through Jesus Christ. It had to be done by a sacrifice, by his perfect life and then the sacrifice on the cross of Calvary so that Christ's own righteousness can be given to us by faith. Lord, help us to see our helplessness. Help us to see there's nothing that we can do but turn fully to you. You're the one who paid for our sins. Lord, I just pray that someone would trust him today, that a lost person today would see there's no hope, there's no way that they can survive this. There's an eternity in hell waiting unless... They receive you as Savior. And then for saved people here today, there may be lust that's been harbored in their hearts, and I just pray, Lord, that you would speak to them and bring them out of that and help them that they might put all their confidence in you to help them to overcome this. Lord, we pray if there's anyone here today who needs to make some kind of move, who needs someone to pray with, someone to talk to them about their salvation or just any areas that we've talked about today or otherwise, Lord, just direct them to our men who are waiting in the back, and Lord, we pray that they would take care of this today. Just bless as we sing this hymn. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.